0: that time of the week again it's time for chit chat across the pond and this is episode number 501 for september 15th 2017 and i'm your host allison sheridan this week our guest is bart bush shots and we are back here with programming by stealth episode 39 of x and we're going to actually uh really kick into gear now right summer vacation's over we've had our our redux we're ready to go
1: yeah it's a light one but yes we're off We're, we're, we're taking it a little bit easy um, sticking to HTML today, so I, I, I've decided not to do the parallel track. Um, I could say it's because I want to go easy on you for the first one, but actually the God's honest truth is I've just been so busy. <laughs> I haven't had a chance to do my own stuff on the cellular automata, so I'm not ready to talk about it anymore. Therefore, we're going to do HTML5 form validation this time, and oh, next time we're going to do only JavaScript.
0: Oh, that, you know, that might work better. It seems like an awful lot when we do both, so... I don't mind that at all. Um, We will talk about the homework, though, a little bit?
1: A little bit, yeah. Okay. No, no, we will. I'll I'll give you my solution. I don't know how much there is to say about it. It's a test suite.
0: Not too much, Uh... but I I just have some snarky things to say that'll be fun.
1: (laughs) Okay, snarky. Wait a moment, then. Um, (laughs) All right. So, basically, the cellular automata are on, on pause until next time. Now, I'm starting into two weeks of annual leave at long last, so... I'll be doing a lot of cellular automating, so we'll be ready for that two weeks from now. Uh, I also, before we get stuck into new HTML stuff, I want to have, I had a little coming to, was it coming to the uh, road to Damascus moment, so Jill will be happy. uh, I won't say more for now. And then we're going to get stuck into HTML5 form validation, and we're going to do it all. And then I'm going to set you a homework challenge. So you're still getting a challenge, even though it's not about the cellular automata. You are still getting a challenge. And it's going to let you practice some muscles I think have, we haven't done enough on, which is your HTML muscles.
0: Oh, good. Good, good, good. Yeah, because every once in a while I think, oh, I'm going to go use something I learned in HTML5 or, or in uh, CSS, and I go to do it, and I'm like, how do you do that again? I forget.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, And you're going to start needing those muscles again more, because we're now getting to the stage where we're going to be using... The three technologies together, which is kind of how they work, right? The internet is a blending of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Those three together make web apps. Web apps. Yeah. So we're going to start needing them. That
0: we were going to braid these eventually, right?
1: Right, and we are we are there. Like from next installment on, we are going to have a working cellular automaton with stop, go buttons, etc. So (gasps) you've got to have it all, right? It doesn't make any sense. Having any of the three in isolation, when you want to make a web app,
0: yeah, I'm looking forward to that because I, I, to be honest, I sit there, look at this stuff, going, "Well, but what's it look like? You know, where is where yeah. is that thing? What what is it? I can't feel it and touch it yet." And I'm hoping with some HTML yeah, in there, I can uh, get my yeah. brain into it a little better.
1: Exactly. So th- th- this this homework is just pure HTML, focusing particularly on forms because forms are your means of the human interacting with the page, right? That's how you tell the page things. So that's obviously going to be a major part of any sort of appy-like behavior in the future. So there's definitely an important thing to get a bit of practice in with. Sounds great. Okay, so way, way back in episode 36, because we've had a few funny episodes in Mm -hmm. in the meantime, I think in 37, we went through in great detail JS doc as a screencast, if memory serves, that one. That was cool. It was fun, actually. Uh, And then 38 was our Taking Stock episode last time. So now we're on 39, but the homework is from way back in 36. (laughs) And what we had done at that point is I had created the code for the automaton prototype within our cellular automaton project. And I had done a stab at the documentation And rather than asking you to write code or to write docs, I asked you to write tests in QUnit because that was a muscle we hadn't exercised in a while. And ultimately, that's kind of a very open-ended assignment because a test suite can be anywhere from three or four tests that just say, call the constructor, does it die in a heap? No. Okay, well, at least this code is mostly functional. It is possible to construct an object, so it can't be complete garbage. Um... Right up to testing every single possibility and basically every clause and every sentence in the documentation is tested. So sort of like a lawyer's approach, right? Well, the documentation says if I put a number in greater than 102, this should happen. Okay, I put in a number greater than 102, does this happen? And for every single clause in every single sentence, you could write a test. Mm-hmm. And reality, in the real world, you tend to fall somewhere in between.
0: <laughs> good, good. So I, I was curious, you know, Dorothy and I worked uh, a lot on this. Uh, I would be mm-hmm. nowhere without Dorothy. Let me make that perfectly clear. Um, but my approach was to look at the documentation and do what it said, you know, make sure that everything yeah. you said that should be true was true. Um, but she took it further and and did things to say, um, does it actually return the
1: value that I expected it to return,
0: which is not something...
1: That, well, that is in the documentation, right? It's in the documentation in the returns field. It's not in the paragraph, but it's most certainly in the documentation.
0: But like, So she would put in, uh, like, as the input would say, I want to talk to 00. Did it actually give mm-hmm. me the grid 00? And I didn't find a place in the documentation where it said it should return that.
1: Well, if it's a function for accessing a particular grid point, that's implicit in what the whole point of it is, right?
0: But the, the word grid it's, is not in the documentation.
1: Okay, but you do still have to uh, apply intelligence. Like it, it's if the func- if the function of the function. ooh, that's bad English. Um, if the role of the function, if if the job of the function is to access specific grids, well, then obviously, if you say "give me grid four four and it actually gives you back grid two two, it's broke there.
0: Yeah. So it's, but it's not unreasonable I, I to don't... pick
1: one at random and say, "Did you give me back the one I picked at random?"
0: But I don't have any way of knowing that the word grid as a, or grid as a concept, as a word, is, is, is in existence unless I go read your code. And so well, that, that was beyond reading the documentation saying, does it do what it says it's going to do?
1: Okay, but I did also give you the code, right? I gave you two inputs.
0: Yeah, oh yeah, but remember what I said at the beginning is I took the approach of oh, if I it says it in the documentation, I will do that. If, it, if it's not in the documentation, to me, it doesn't exist. So I think really the answer is you do have to use both
1: to say, okay, how does the real world, right? It's kind of an, uh, it's a bit of an artificial situation to give you, in the real world, the person writing all three of those things is you, right? It's not some guys writing the docs and other guys writing code and other guys writing the test suite. In reality, it's you, you and you. Well, if it's a big, if it was
0: a big uh, operation, you might be. You might have well, a whole no, but, organization no, no, that does the test, right?
1: That's carrying out the test rather than writing the tests. This is not usability testing. This is fully automated testing. That would be done. That, that should be. So the way it would go about it is you would write the spec to say, this is what my code should do. You would then write the test that match what your code should do. And then you'd write the code.
0: Yeah. 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 Right, right, right. I do remember that.
1: So you might have a big project with thousands of prototypes and thousands of functions and you might have Bob doing the code testing and documentation for one prototype and Alice doing another one and John Joe doing another one but you would expect the same person to be doing all three aspects of a specific function.
0: Oh okay. Okay.
1: I mean there there are different ways of doing things but if you're going to do the unit testing sort of approach because you don't have to do unit testing, right? That's a software engineering methodology. There's cleaner, there's all sorts of ways you can organize the practicalities of writing code. But unit testing is kind of the one we've settled on. And in a unit testing mindset, you would be doing all three sort of together, right? It's, what do I want to do? How do I test for it, write the code? Does it work? If the answer, until the answer is yes, continue writing the code. (laughs) Then write your next bit of documentation, your next test, and your next bit of code. And you keep going until all three are in sync with each other. And then you move on, and then you move on, and then you move on. you don't
0: forget on. the step of where writing the second bit of code breaks the first test. you got to <laughs> include that route, right?
1: Sure, but the great thing is... like, So I've been doing a lot of coding this summer. It's part of my work. It's kind of... I I was listening to a podcast and someone said something very interesting. Uh, it was a completely different topic. It was on photography. They were basically a professional photographer who had found that they had no time anymore for doing personal photographic work. And they said, it's like I have a finite bucket of creativity and I've used up all of my creativity for the week in work. And I don't have any left for myself. And that's kind of the way I've been with code the last these summer months, which has always been very hard for me to spend what little free time I have working on stuff for this series. Because to be honest, my coding quota for the week has been entirely subsumed into writing real-world code and work. But as part of doing that, I've really... So I've been writing in all JavaScript using QUnit so a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, I've been doing for real's wow. on
0: and, and that didn't big exist. Projects. You, without having done that in here, you may not have done it, right? I
1: using wouldn't gear. I would have I would have been different. I would have been using probably I don't think I would have actually been doing the unit testing stuff. i d I've always known I need to get into testing, but I hadn't ever actually crossed the that threshold of having icky. done it for this series. Yeah, and it is kind of icky, but now that I've been doing it for real. So I've built up a really big code base now of stuff that has code tests and docs. And I built them up together in the way we described in theory. And actually, the result is it's a much more efficient way to code, even though it sounds like more work writing three things instead of one thing. As the project matures, you can do open heart surgery on your code and you know you haven't broken stuff because you just run that Test.
0: Yeah, yeah. Right. So you're probably writing better code, and it, yes. it's sort of like, do you really want to go back and write the documentation after the fact? Oh, no, really you're never hard. going to, and you're, no. you're
1: not going to remember what you should be documenting. Either. Right
0: now, I'll write the tests. No, I'll write like five tests. But if you have to do, if you do it up front, yeah.
1: yeah. And so as you're cool. continuing to write the code, so you might write a prototype to represent something, and you'll write that prototype. You'll write the test for you. Get that prototype working. And then you'll move on to something else. And then a week later, you'll come back to use that prototype. You have, at that point, completely forgotten what names you gave all of your functions, what order you put all of your arguments in. But if you have the JS doc documentation ready, no problem. Click on the name of the prototype in the sidebar, and there's your answer.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, And I've also learned some really
1: cool new JS doc tricks, actually, which I'm definitely going to port back. So the next time you see the cellular automaton code, be uh, prepared to be amazed at the documentation because I've learned some really cool new tricks.
0: Oh, neat, neat. The other thing that this does for you is is it reduces the cognitive load if you know you don't have to remember that. Yes. Right? You get, to, yes. you get to say, okay, I have put it down here. It exists there. Now I don't have to carry that in my head. I can fill it up with some other stuff I need on this next thing I'm going to work on. And then when I go back, it'll be there for me and I don't have to carry it the whole time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's even stuff like, so I've now discovered that you can create something called the tutorial within the JS doc documentation suite. Mm. And so for the things that are not strictly code, like configuration files, you can actually describe them in, in, as a, basically a markdown web page and have those appear in the sidebar of the documentation as a nested list of topics. So you can basically have what looks like a nested set of tutorials and all of the documentation we've already learned about. So it's extremely powerful. Neat. Yeah, very neat. So anyway, it's slightly, arguably slightly off topic, but basically I have been doing this for real and the tests the tests are amazing. Having those in your back pocket, because you are forced to change horses midstream sometimes. You you take an approach it doesn't work out and you have to rip out huge swathes of your code and that in the past scared the Hands of me because you had no idea what side effects you were making, but when you have that test suite in your back pocket, you you can go home knowing it still works you haven 't broken everything and you just you know npm run test it calls well okay so i 'm using node, so it basically calls qunit unit da, 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 and if it spits out fail zero success, whatever the big number is, you can go home it's like okay i haven 't broken everything. Git commit, or rather git push, sort of home. Yeah. So it, it 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 really works in the real world for, you know, because real world projects never go according to theory.
0: Sure, sure. Right, right, right.
1: Well, so I, it, it's I, nice. I need to
0: make my snarky comment still, though. Uh, Oh, okay. After after uh, Dorothy put in probably 300 hours helping me do my homework, um, I was we were had been to happy hour. And of course, the boys were off talking about something we didn't care about. So I said, oh, let's go play with the code some more. And I noted that in some cases you'd say that uh, this it should throw a range error as opposed to an Mm -hmm. error. She was only checking for error. I was checking for range error, so I made her go back and change her code. So she pretty much owes, you know, her entire solution to me.
1: That's really what. To to be honest, that's actually an important distinction because a user of your code may like your code. A single function may throw four or five different types of error in different situations, and a user of your code may actually want to check. Okay, not only do I know it was cranky, but why was it cranky? Oh, range error. Well, that's different to some other kind of error.
0: Right. Now, right. I don't
1: think in this case we had any such functions, but in the real world, you certainly do come across such functions.
0: Yep. So
1: I wrote some in the last few weeks, in fact.
0: <laughs> anyway, I don't want to derail us too much, but I needed to make that one point just to, to make Dorothy laugh in any case. Well, I'm,
1: I'm, I, when you said you had a snarky comment to make, I assumed I was going to be on the receiving end for the quality <laughs> or lack thereof of my documentation.
0: Well, I do want to tell you I've been looking for a solution to one problem, uh, okay. which is... When you write the documentation in your code editor,
1: but yes, you can't, which doesn't have check. spell checking. Yeah. yeah,
0: so I've I've been working on solutions for that, and like there's a there's a browser plugin called Grammarly that will check your do spell check, but it won't in the browser. Yeah, in the browser. So if you open the doc in a browser, but you can't fix it there. So you'd kind of have to have that open. You're flipping over
1: and back and over and back. Yeah,
0: But, and if you have it look at the code, well, it's going to be full of crap. It doesn't (laughs) understand, right? It's just going to barf on everything. Um,
1: So what you actually need is an IDE that is fully aware of the difference between code and comment and that has a spell checker plugged in to only apply spell checks to the comments.
0: Yeah. I started wondering whether Uh, there's any kind of tool that would allow you to do a search of a segment of text within a uh, a text editor that says okay everything that's got a star on the left-hand side or whatever it is or a hashtag i forget what it is and say grab that spell check it put it back i don't know
1: in theory the apis in an open source ide like atom would allow that because you have an atom plugin for javascript that understands what each line is mm-hmm. so you can ask that api you know, is this a comment, yes or no? So then you could use that API in conjunction with some sort of free and open source spell checker API, which I'm sure someone has written somewhere, and tie those two together to underline misspelled words if they're inside comments. But So that's a, that's a big chunk of work. So it's theoretically doable, but I don't know of anyone who's done it. Yeah. Wow. So if any of the listeners happen to know of a plugin for any of the open source IDEs that does spell checking within the comments, within languages of your choice, I'd love to know because my spelling is atrocious.
0: Yeah. It, well, and sometimes there's just stuff like, and, it, and it's just not spelling being atrocious. My spelling is fantastic. But what I write is full of typos. I, mean, I, can have, I have Steve check my stuff and Stephen gets, and I still have people coming back and telling me I messed something up. And, you know, I, that's why I was putting Grammarly in is maybe an automated system would do it better than we are. Uh, so
1: <laughs> Someone finally after. So I've been working on this code in work for months now, most pretty much the entire summer. And there's a brand name that shows up in my code a lot because I'm integrating different systems. And I have misspelled that brand name in every prototype name and every <laughs> function call. In the entire application and nobody noticed until yesterday. Oh my god. Nobody. Gosh. Can you Absolutely do a change of Nobody. All? No, it's too late now. That's so baked in. Oh I, no. We are just going to misspell the word syllabus. <laughs>
0: that's awesome.
1: As far as I'm concerned, Syllabus Plus has a new brand name, syllabus with one L. <laughs> okay, that's pretty funny, Bart. <laughs> but no one else noticed, so it's not just me. Yeah, well that's
0: the thing. What are you gonna do? I, I can't spell automaton yet. Yeah, there we go. We have to
1: practice, practice, practice.
0: Yeah. All right. We should keep moving.
1: In the past, so I also... Okay, so now that we've come... So in our taking stock last time, I sort of hinted that we're we're moving into a phase when we're more mature. So I now expect you to be able to read stuff from documentation. And I also, although we are not for a while going to actually do a deep dive into source control, I want you to be aware of the fact that there exists this concept of... systems for managing the versions of code. And probably the leading open source, definitely the leading open source source control system these days is Git. Right. And it's it is it was written by Linus Torvalds, i.e. the guy who wrote the Linux kernel. And the reason he created Git was because he was fed up with the shortcomings of everything else that existed for managing large projects of code. So he wrote his own, which is Git. So Git is a source control system designed to be able to manage large projects like the Linux kernel with hundreds of developers contributing. So it is a a very serious system. Now, you can run it on your own servers, but there are also plenty of cloud offerings where someone else does all the hard work. And the leading cloud offering is a web service called GitHub.
0: I think we actually talked about this early on.
1: We've mentioned it a few times in passing. So from now on, I am not going to include sample solutions to projects we're working on together in the zip files. Instead, I'm going to create a repository for the project on my GitHub page. And I'm going to tag the current version. So basically put a tag on the repository that says this state of the code here. This was the solution to challenge 36. This stage of the code here this is the starting point for challenge 37. Next time publish a new branch. This here is the result or my solution to project 30 or challenge 37 and so on. So we're going to start using the concept that code exists as a timeline and you can flag parts of that timeline and give them a name and they sit within a tree of the code's history. So from now on, you're going to get links to snapshots in time of the ever-evolving code, which is going to be the solutions and starting points, to challenges.
0: Cool. I just downloaded it. Easy peasy.
1: Easy peasy. So you can download it. There's a big green download button, and you get a zip file which contains the code at that point in time. So that labeled, named, point in history. Uh, You could also use a desktop client. So GitHub Desktop is a desktop client for GitHub made by GitHub. Who knew? Hmm. It's free. It's nice. Or I am completely in love at the moment with a freemium product called Git Kraken. I presume they're German. Um with a name like Kraken with a K. It is basically it's freemium in the sense that it is free to use for non-commercial purposes, but if you use it commercially you pay, which is fine by me. And sure. this stuff here is Programming by self is the very definition of non commercial purposes. Everything is under Creative Commons. There's a Creative Commons logo right in the left sidebar here. So, this is definitely open source stuff we're doing. So, I can use Git Kraken entirely legally for this. And I do. I think it's a fantastic GUI for Git. Um, So, you can use that to clone any client, you can use that to clone to your computer. Or, if you set up a free GitHub account, you can say, click the fork button, and then a copy of the code goes into your GitHub account. And you can then make your edits in your version of GitHub. And then pull back my changes afterwards and merge them into yours or whatever you want to do. So there's lots of opportunities here to grow from I'll click the button and download the zip file all the way up to I will start to collaborate, maybe even push suggested typo fixes back to BART and stuff like that. Ooh, so the whole that spectrum fun. is open to us by using this tool. I and over like
0: time,
1: Git Kraken is cool. And their icon is like a little squiddy thing that <laughs> swims while you're waiting for it to Release load. It's the quite, Release
0: the Kraken. Release the Kraken.
1: <laughs> exactly he's very cute he's very cute kraken
0: oh and when you open him he's, he's the squid flies in the air
1: that's what I mean he squirts yeah. little bubbles as he's yeah I'm a very big fan of kid kraken There's just there's something about the company when you read their docs and stuff there are people that's just I, there's something about them I like Yeah, and I should say the app pretty well uh, the app maybe I would say the app is for people who are comfortable enough in git to understand what the words mean uh oh so the GitHub desktop client is much simpler. The Git GitKraken client is much more powerful. So I think over time, I think sort of the natural evolution is get used to the website, then get used to the GitHub desktop client, then get used to Git GitKraken. But there's no harm in having it installed, right? It, right? it is quite good about telling you, are you sure? It, it, it does that. When you're about to do something disastrous, like delete everything, it does pop up and going, is that really what you meant? Okay. If you say yes, it will go ahead and oblige, but it will it it will sort of go.
0: Mm, are you sure? I'll go back to the training wheels.
1: Fine. But as I say, over the next year, we are going to slowly, by stealth, get you comfortable with the vague ideas, and then we're going to do a deep dive. Okay. And actually learn about Git. So for now, there's a link you can download my solution to installment thirty-six. Next week, when I set you challenge forty. I will send you a link to your starting point on GitHub. Okay. So now I want to take a little diversion for a moment and say that I've done some thinking during our hiatus and I've changed my mind on something. And it's something that Jill has been trying to convince me to change my mind on for the last two years, probably, since I started this series. I spent so long writing XHTML that my brain has taken about two years to get over it. But I think I'm over it now. So everything we've done to now is valid HTML5. But it's only valid HTML5 because HTML5 is backwards compatible with the old way of doing things. I am now embracing the new way of doing things. Rather than the backwards compatible but valid way of doing things. Hmm. So what does that mean in real terms? So right up until now in the series, I have been religiously putting the trailing slash on empty tags like IMG and BR and stuff like that. So it's BR space slash and then close the tag. So that's Which putting the trailing... Which I be
0: the other way around.
1: How do you mean? It
0: can be slash BR.
1: No, it can't. Not in an empty tag. That would be a closing tag for a tag that contains content. An empty tag is a tag like an image tag that contains no content. So you have P slash P, you have an opening P, some content, and a closing P.
0: Hmm, I thought it could be. P. Okay, I believe you.
1: Yeah. Anyway, I am not going to be doing that anymore. That's just a waste of characters and space. Uh, in H- in XHTML, you always had to put quotation marks around every possible value. That's not true in HTML5. So instead of saying value equals quote, four, quote, you can just say value equals four. I'm going to be doing that as well. Hmm. And for Boolean attributes, you had the most stupid thing in the world in XHTML. You had to say stuff like selected equals quote selected. In HTML5, you can just say selected.
0: I think I remember you talking about how stupid that was.
1: Oh, it is, when, it is. When you taught it to us. Yeah. So from now on I'm doing things the modern way. So if you see there in the paragraph we have B or slash and option value equals quote for quote, selected equals quote selected quote. You now see how what I'm going to be doing from now on and said at the bottom of the next paragraph, just plain old B or. And option value equals four selected. Hmm. Good. Okay, Why so basically, shorter, clearer code, entirely embracing HTML5, and just forgetting about being backwards compatible. Sod older versions of HTML. <laughs> sod IE6. I don't care. We're moving forward. I have after, after fully embraced grief, it
0: they, they put us through with uh, IE6 ruining the internet for so long. I'm on the, uh, the, the SUD ie uh, bandwagon, that's for sure. Yeah.
1: So there we go. So that's just to say, Jill, you were right. It's taken me a long time to come around, but you were completely right. And here we are. For the rest of this series, it's HTML5 only. All right. Okay, so form validation. In all versions of HTML before version 5, there was this glaring omission there was no support within the HTML specification at all for doing client-side data validation on web forms. The only way to get some sort of feedback, as to whether you're putting in valid information, was to submit it to the server, have the server crunch its numbers, and then have the server come back with some sort of error message that tells you why you're wrong. Really, you would like to avoid that and have the web browser do the validation for you so that you can get it right before you ever hit the submit button. You don't want to have to click, wait, fix something, click, wait, fix something, click, wait, fix something. Let the browser help you along. JavaScript helped because with JavaScript, you had the power to reinvent the wheel on every single web page you made. You could roll your own. You could port the feature into the browser by using your own JavaScript. But that's kind of like buying a car and then having to vulcanize the rubber on your own tires. (laughs) So HTML5 finally addressed that shortcoming. And in HTML5, you have a standard as part of the spec mechanism for doing client side form validation. And so that's what we're going to learn about today. Now. At the moment, we have no concept of a server. So we're only doing stuff on the client side. So this is actually pretty nice for us to have this built in. But just to say, just going to put a flag in this, when we get around to learning about server side stuff, you never, ever, 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 ever rely on client side validation for security. You must always assume that the stuff sent to you from a client has been interfered with because it may be coming from a modern browser which implements validation, but it could just as well be coming from the terminal using the curl command. And the attacker could have put any data they want in trivially easily. It's just a terminal command, curl minus minus data equals whatever. So client-side form validation is a way of helping your users be more efficient. It is not a security feature. It is purely a usability feature. So every web server that receives information must assume it's garbage and validate it. So I just want to put a pin on that because it is one of the most common ways that people write insecure garbage and then end up on security bits.
0: <laughs> okay, right. okay.
1: So this is not a security feature. This is a usability feature. And once you know that, everything else makes sense. So there are two parts to form validation in HTML5 there are attributes for HTML tags which allow you as a programmer to specify what the rules are. This value must meet these criteria, whatever those rules are. So you're using HTML to say what data is acceptable. And CSS is there to display the fact that you're cranky. So you use HTML to specify what is okay and what is not okay. And you use CSS to decide how to let the user know. So if something is invalid, do I make it bright pink? Do I make the text be red? What do I do? So you use CSS for the presentation of the error. And you use HTML for the definition of what's right and what's wrong. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So let's start with the easy bit.
0: And by definition, Uh, you mean the words going back to the person.
1: No, 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 no. I mean the actual specification. So if it's a, what that means is going to depend on what type of input it is, right? If it's a number field, then the specification might be, must be less than this, must be greater than that.
0: But that's not in HTML. That's over in your code.
1: No, 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 no. It will be in HTML. It will be in the HTML. Proper, you know, open angle bracket, input, type equals number, max, min equals four, max equals five, Close angle, Why do
0: we put all those tests in there for then in our code if we didn't, if we know we're going to get the right stuff?
1: We don't. This is not a security feature. This is purely a usability thing.
0: No, but I'm talking usability. I'm not talking security. I mean, if you tell them you have to put in a number between one and four and they type in boogers, we're over here in the code making sure we throw an error if they put in boogers. As we should. Why do you have to? People don't
1: read. Well, Human beings be, do
0: not read. Right, they're going to get the. But we've if you've got a test for it, if you've got the spec for it in the in the HTML, don't you have it specified twice? I thought the code would oh. reject it and then send the message to the HTML to say, "Hey, moron, it's supposed to be between one."
1: Absolutely, and four. that that absolutely is how it works. but I I don't understand why you think that means it's in there twice.
0: So you're saying that the HTML includes the spec.
1: The HTML says. For example, as to say, what it says is going to depend from field to field, but it says things like minimum value for this text box is four, maximum value for this number is a hundred. Right. And then the browser will know that anything that's not between four and one hundred is invalid. But and the browser will let the user know that there's something screwy going on.
0: But doesn't the browser know that it's incorrect because the JavaScript told the browser?
1: No, 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 no. Okay. Zero JavaScript. The whole point of this is that we are not reinventing the wheel. We are not vulcanizing our own tires. This is an HTML5 feature. The the whole point of this is it's native HTML form validation. We're no longer having to do JavaScript to do this ourselves. This is a feature that we now get for free.
0: Okay, so we're going to write that into our, we don't have to write that into our JavaScript anymore.
1: Exactly. So in the bad old oh. days, it was up to us to reinvent the wheel on every single page. Okay. And now HTML5 gives us a mechanism to just put it in the HTML. Just when you're creating the in the the text box or whatever, also tell the browser what rules to enforce.
0: Hmm. Okay. Now I got you.
1: And okay, good. So every single web form element on a web form has in the browser's brain a state. And that state is one of two possible states, valid or invalid. So at all points in time, every single text box is in one of those two states. Every single text area, every single thing that the user can do stuff with is in one of those two states. So they're valid or invalid. And the browser allows us to style those based on CSS pseudo classes, colon valid and colon invalid.
0: Hmm. Okay.
1: So if we want to make something red when it's invalid, we would use the colon invalid in our selector.
0: Oh, nice.
1: And then we get to do what we want. So as an example here, the first code example in the show notes is making stuff that's valid dark green and stuff that's invalid dark red. So our selector starts with a tag name, input. So this will only apply to input tags. Then I'm and I'm stretching you here a bit. Uh, the square brackets, what do they mean? Mm, I
0: don't remember. They are the oh, look attribute. At the thing to the, oh, the attribute? Okay.
1: They're, okay, you're thinking JavaScript here. This is Sorry. CSS. <laughs> I know it has curly braces and I know it has square braces, but it's a different language still. So yeah. Just yeah. Okay. So that's Uh-oh. the attribute. Yeah. So that means input type equals text. All right. So if you yeah. say img src equals, you'd be square brackets src equals what you're trying to get. So this rule will only apply to an input of type equals text, which contains the pseudo class colon valid. And then inside the squirty brackets, we say what to do if that is true. And what we say is color dark green. So we're saying that every input of type text that is valid should have a color of dark green. Okay. And unsurprisingly, the next declaration says every input of type text that is invalid should have a color of dark red. (laughs) Seems like a sane way to respond. Yeah. So by default, the browser applies no rules to colon valid or colon invalid. So by default, if you as the developer do nothing, the browser still assigns a state to every form element.
0: Oh, okay.
1: But it doesn't have an effect on the visual page until you, the developer, decide that you want to do something. Okay. Now, what does happen regardless of whether or not you style based on colon valid or colon invalid is the the uh, validation always kicks in at the moment the user presses the submit button. So the rules in HTML5's form specification say that when the person clicks the submit button what the browser must do is start at the top of the form and work its way down to the bottom checking every element to make sure its state is valid. The moment it meets A single thing that's invalid, it stops, highlights that one thing to the user, and cancels the submit. The user should then fix the problem and click submit again, and then it runs through that whole process again, and this time it'll get by the one they fixed last time, and it might stop on the next one. So you don't tell the user five errors at once. The user gets the errors one at a time, starting from the top and rippling their way down the form.
0: But that doesn't always happen that way, right? I mean, there, it's pretty common. It does if that, you
1: use the feature.
0: But that that to me is actually more irritating. Like, if I've well, no, forgotten okay. three things in a form, I didn't fill out three of the fields, I want to see all three at once. I don't want to have to keep
1: okay. hitting submit. But that's why you have the pseudo classes to allow the CSS to tell people. Right? So the developer can choose to make everything invalid red. That would just happen.
0: Okay, I think they, they had to ignore, keep submitting.
1: No, no. It... If at the point you submit, there is invalid data, the browser will stop you. The submit will be cancelled oh, and you I see will be you told, okay. deal with it. I've already highlighted it in luminous pink, but no, <laughs> you're not getting away with this. You have to fix this.
0: Uh, so like, s- like my sign-in for CES that insists that I have to call myself either Ms. or Mrs. What? I don't want to. Sometimes I pick doctor just to mess with him. <laughs>
1: But it's like that, right? I hate that kind of thing. Yeah. You must pigeonhole yourself. And here are the cubicles. Make yourself fit. Yep. Hate that. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um so yes, okay. So if you yeah, so basically it's up to the developer to highlight what it means to be invalid, and the browser will then enforce validity on form submission. Um How the browser, so the specification says that the browser must tell the user. The specification leaves it to the browser manufacturer to decide how to do that, which means that a touch-based mobile browser may do something different to a desktop browser. The point is, the spec says you must highlight the field, focus it, and tell the user why you're cranky. But the details are left to you. So if you take the same form and run it on Firefox versus Chrome versus Safari, you will get slightly different behaviors. But at their core, it's the same.
0: But I thought that it, the uh, the HTML knows something is wrong, but it doesn't highlight it unless the developer says what to
1: do with that. Until, until you hit submit, at the point you hit submit, you've said to the browser, send this to the server. And at that point, the browser actively validates the fields. Right. And if you have garbage in there, the browser must act.
0: But how does right? it, how do, it, it doesn't know any CSS to act with to not tell me? It's using
1: CSS. It's going to use a standard browser mechanism to tell like, you like a message. Like just
0: stop with the cursor in the field where it needs to be filled
1: in or something like that? I mean, it could be a pop-up. It could do whatever it wants. It's up to the browser manufacturer. So everyone is different. Safari puts, it focuses the field, puts a giant big border around it, and pops a pop-over message that's with an arrow pointing at the bit that's wrong and tells you what to do. But that is up to the browser to decide. The point being, until the point you hit submit, it's up to the developer to do whatever subtle cues they want. You know, using those colon valid colon invalid fields, the the developer could be as creative, as tasteful. (laughs) <laughs> it is tasteless as they like. But the moment the user hits submit, you've handed over to the browser and the browser's standard features come into play and the browser will do whatever the developer of the browser thought made sense. Okay, I would so say I'm a, the summary are quite pretty.
0: I'm on, a, um, I'm on a form and the first field says put a number between one and four. So I type seven and I move on. The developer can have put CSS in there where right now when it knows it's invalid, it's going to it's gonna highlight that in red and say you're a moron. Yes. But correct if as a developer I hadn't written that, when I hit submit, it would go back and stop at that field and give me an indication.
1: Yes. Okay. That's perfectly. So the, the
0: annoying ones are the ones that where the developer didn't bother to tell you that, you know, you used a, a an ampersand and a password and that's not an allowable field and it makes you hit submit yeah. and go back and you don't know what's wrong, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And a nice a nice web form will have those little checkboxes that change as you go and stuff like that. And so you can implement all that with the CSS if you're creative enough. Um, but yeah, that is how those work. So as you're typing, it's validating your input based on the rules. And the state is flipping from valid to invalid. And as the state flips, different CSS rules come in and out of... Fo- focus is the wrong word, but... They apply or don't apply to the page, and its its visual aspect changes depending on the rules and the CSS. Hmm. And at the moment you hit submit, you've handed over to the browser, and then the browser applies the rules religiously, and it will just do whatever needs to be done.
0: But it has to do it. Has to do it. Oh, okay.
1: So, and there will uh, there's going to be screenshots as we go through this to show you what Safari does, but every browser gets to do their own thing. Okay. So the absolute simplest type of validation is saying that something is required. Right? That is a form of validation it's an extremely simplistic one. You must enter something. Mm-hmm. I don't care what it is, you just must enter something. So you can mark a field as required using the html5 attribute required. So we see here we have a sample of a text box, which you do need to scroll a bit to see all of, which just has input type equals text, name equals something optional. And that's it. And on the one below, we have input type equals text, name equals something required, required. So the second one is required. The first one is not. So you mark something as optional by not marking it as required.
0: I'm not seeing where you said... Uh, I see label, something optional, input type okay, equals text, name equals something optional, close uh, label
1: bracket. Right, so that one is not required, so it does not say required anywhere.
0: Oh, there it is. Okay, and the second one, required, is is just in it's black a context. It, it's a Boolean attribute.
1: So you could do the old-fashioned XHTML, required equals quote, required, quote. <laughs> but we're That's not doing why I didn't see
0: it. That's why I didn't see it, because it just looked like text you type but it was yeah. but wait a minute but that's all it's still inside the
1: label it's in, no it's inside the input tag open angle bracket input type equals text so input oh, is next okay tag. okay it has three attributes there type okay. name and required
0: huh. huh yeah that is simple it's going to be hard to get used to
1: <laughs> yeah well it's probably a good thing to get used to the simpler way
0: yeah
1: there are also CSS classes attached to requiredness, colon required and colon optional. So you can style your form differently depending on whether it's required or not. So maybe you might use a color to indicate validity, so red and green, and maybe you might use boldness to indicate requiredness. A way of going about it, or maybe use a background color to indicate whether or not it's required and a foreground color to indicate whether or not it's valid. Up to you as a developer to decide what to do. But those CSS pseudo classes are at your disposal to use or not to use. Again, those pseudo classes have no effect by default. They come into being, or sorry, they, they have a visual effect when you, the developer, add some CSS rules.
0: It seems odd that before you hit submit, that information exists in the, such that the CSS can talk to it. That's interesting. But at the moment you've written the HTML, it exists, right? And
1: so the browser, I know, I the mean, browser,
0: as, as as soon as the user has typed something, I type in yeah. boogers when it said one to four. You're yeah. saying that the CSS will highlight it. I can, I,
1: as a developer, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, because the browser is constantly up. So the browser keeps that see keeps the CSS current at all times. That's, that's yeah. the first thing I said. So at all points in time, the state. Is kept track of by the browser. And as the state changes, the pseudo classes are applied and removed. So if it's not valid, it doesn't have the pseudo class valid anymore. Instead, it has the pseudo class invalid. So different CSS rules come and go. Just like with hover, if you mark something as being hovered, those rules only apply while you're actually hovering. Yeah. So it's no different to colon hover in that sense. OK. OK, so we have an example of a required field from pbs39.html. So pbs39.html is our final example that puts it all together. You'll find it in the zip file and you can use that to make the browser do things. And so what you will see is basically there's code here for a simple input. So it has a label that has an input type equals text, name equals name required, ID equals something. If you hit submit, and you have not entered anything what safari does is put that blue border around and that little call out with a little arrow fill out this field so i didn't write the css for that that is how safari chooses to go oi you huh that was a required field okay. you did not obey even before
0: you do anything it's mad at, it's, it's got it in red
1: that's because this that page has it uses the pseudo classes. Okay. That red is coming from me. Oh, that is
0: coming from you. Okay.
1: Yeah. So if you look at the source, I use CSS on that page because I'm obviously demoing everything we talk about. So the redness is coming from it being invalid. The yellow background is how I've chosen to indicate required fields. Mm-hmm. But that little call out and that blue highlight, that's, that's the browser basically saying, I have focused this field for you and I really do want you to do what I'm telling you here. And you can keep hitting that submit button until the cows come home. I am going to continue to put your cursor back in that text box and put this little call out above it, telling you that you need to fill this field out.
0: It turns out you can put boogers in there,
1: yes you can you know, it's it the also, only thing I'm testing. it
0: also for me in Safari shows a little a little person,
1: yeah, because I go I called it name, so uh, Safari's going, ah, I can this is name this name. yeah I can exactly that's Safari's intelligence kicking into being there interesting. So whether or not something is required is the simplest kind of validation. The next obvious thing is just how many characters have you entered? Is it enough or is it too much? And so both text boxes and text areas have attributes enabled min length and max length. And the values they expect are numbers of characters. So a min length of four means you must type at least four characters. A max length of eight means you must type no more than eight characters. Now, most browsers will deal with the max length by chopping off your input after that length. So you physically will not be able to type more than yeah. the appropriate number of characters. I know I mean, because when you're editing something... That,
0: if you're going to do that, you better give me the, uh, the number ahead of time. and be showing me a countdown.
1: That is a nice thing to do. Yeah, you could do that with a bit of JavaScript, but you would have to use JavaScript for that. Or at least give me a bong as you're deleting characters. Because what what will often happen is I'll be typing, I'll have typed something, I'll go back to read my typos, and as I'm fixing typos, characters are falling off the bottom of my message. Yeah. At least bong at me when I do that. So I know there's something going on. Anyway, so min length and max length allow you to specify minimum and maximum. So if the length of input is not in keeping with the min and the max, then it will be marked as invalid. There's an interesting little caveat here. If the field is not required, the validation won't kick in on an empty field. So if you say the min oh. length is 4 and the max length is 100, but unless you mark zero. the field as required, it's either empty or between this range and this range. Oh,
0: good. Okay, so empty isn't 0. Empty is empty.
1: Exactly. Empty as I haven't got here yet. And once you enter anything into it, then the min and max length kick into being. Which people find counterintuitive, but actually it's an optional field, so it does actually make sense. Unless you mark the field as required, and then the rules always apply.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Because
1: you've said you must enter something here, and it must be between four and eight characters or whatever. So the sample code here is again from uh, PBS... Uh, 39.html, it shows a text area this time with a matching label and it says min length 10, max length 140. Yeah, And you'll see I type two characters and I try to hit the submit button and the screenshot shows what happened. Safari very helpfully went, use at least 10 characters. Which is not a bad thing for it to do by default.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's perfect.
1: Exactly. So The next type of thing we have then, so length applies to any sort of text input, but if you create your text input as a number field, so remember last time we learned that you can say input type equals number, and it gives you the little up and down arrows, and it basically tells the browser, this should be a number. Well, one of the things doing that does is it triggers validation. It says, well, this field must be a a number. Because you've said type equals number, you have... a applied some validation immediately. If you, you can physically type in buggers, but as soon as you hit the submit form, it says, no, this should be a number. So you can see in the screenshot there, I have some percentage and the rules on that field are that it's a number. And I've also used the max and min attributes to specify not just it must be a number. So type equals number means this has to be a number. And then you can use max and min to specify the range of valid values. And in this case, so if I just type in something that's not a number at all, Safari's answer is enter a number. And if I type in 150, but I've said it has to be between 0 and 100, Safari says value must be less than or equal to 100.
0: So it's really interpreting it well.
1: Safari does a good job. Yeah. Yeah. So we've now covered basic length requirements, numeric requirements, so numeric bounds. So the next thing is text patterns. So we also learned last time, so as well as being able to say type equals number, there was also type equals URL and type equals email and type equals tell for telephone. And I mentioned last time that those have no visual effect, but they'll become important in the next installment. Well, hey, presto, here we are in the next installment.
0: (laughs) Presto! (laughs) Exactly. Seven months later.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So what they do is they tell the browser to validate the field. If you say type equals URL, you have enabled validation on that field. The browser is going, okay, this has to be a URL. Or if you say type equals email, the browser goes, well, okay then, this has to be an email. And so if you enter the wrong thing, it will tell you, sorry, you're talking garbage. And that that deals with a lot. Just those few things deals with a lot of possible things. But there's a catch all. What word do you think is marching towards this conversation? I, oh, come on. How well do you know me at this stage? It's got to be regular expression. Oh, sorry. Yeah, there you go. Right. So, saying type equals number, saying type equals URL, saving type equals emails, they are specifying predetermined patterns. There is an attribute named pattern which allows you to specify a JavaScript-style regular expression. And if you do that, then you can basically make a field need anything. So as an example, I have the pattern hat symbol square bracket at close square bracket, open square bracket, slash W close square bracket plus dollar. Which, unless you speak regular expressionese, looks pretty horrible. But let's break it down.
0: All I can remember is the hat means starts with.
1: Exactly, and the dollar means ends with. There we go. You sandwiched it immediately. We're saying that I want to check the entirety of what you have typed. I'm not just looking for a substring. I'm looking for the entirety of what you type to meet whatever the hell comes between the. Oh, okay. By saying
0: starts with with and ends with, I'm going to look at all of it. Okay.
1: Yeah. So. Square brackets allow you to define character classes. So in other words, they are lists of characters. So basically, the first one says, I want the character at. And the reason I put special characters into character classes is because, well, they're special characters and they have other meanings if they're not inside a character class. The character so I could class, put, again,
0: was the brackets, the square brackets? Yeah.
1: Okay. So I could have backslash at, but I just much prefer to wrap it in square brackets because that's okay. just prettier. So I'm saying, this must start with an at. And then we have another character class, square brackets again. And this time we have backslash W, which is the escape sequence for any word character. A word character being a letter, a digit, or an underscore.
0: So you put it in a character class to avoid the backslash, but then you ended up with a backslash anyway.
1: Yeah, but this is clearer, right? So it's saying this is a distinctly different thing to what's come before. Okay. And it's followed by the plus symbol. Do you remember what the plus symbol means?
0: As many characters as you want?
1: Almost. One or more. Okay. So at least one, but as many as you like. So an at symbol followed by at least one word character or as many as you like. That I think you'll find is a Twitter handle. Right, right. And therefore the placeholder text is at username. So if you then type something into it that's not a Twitter handle and you hit submit, the only thing Safari can do is put up the generic message match re- match the requested format so at this point it's important that i wrote twitter handle as the label for that field because safari cannot possibly figure out how to describe any regular expression any developer could ever invent in english right if apple could do that they would win the nobel prize for having solved ai <laughs> completely
0: so you really should have put twitter handle okay well remember at there's a placeholder name. field
1: but there's a placeholder field there, so while that text box was empty, it would have said at username.
0: Right, but when so I read it that wrong, yourself. when I read it wrong, and I've got the error message telling me I need to um, match the requested format, I can't see the requested format anymore.
1: Yeah, fair point. But I sort of mm-hmm. assume that you won't get it wrong because I put it there <laughs> in the previous text. So, so I do like... have
0: a question, um, mm. just to try to break this on email. Sure. I wrote top at hat, and I that didn't... is a
1: valid email address.
0: Without a domain?
1: That is a domain. Hat is a domain. Anyone can buy a top-level domain these days. It costs a few hundred thousand dollars, but you could buy Hat.
0: That's stupid. It should check for the dot.
1: <laughs> no, seriously. It is no, really intelligent.
0: No, I understand, but... Why Five would, years
1: ago, you is, were correct. Are you and telling the browser? somebody's
0: is, email address, a valid email address, is at a TLD?
1: Yes, because you can buy your own TLD. They
0: don't need to take that into account. They
1: should have made it stupid. Uh, yes, they yes they should, because you can also, within an organization, you don't need to have domains. Within an organization, you can have at company or at local or at local host. Okay, but
0: you're much more likely to get invalid email addresses submitted because you're not checking for that than the other way around. No,
1: the opposite, I'm afraid, is true. So. Most of the web forms that are broken are web forms that check for the officially accepted TLDs five years ago, and they don't have .dot guru and .dot whatever, and you end up with oh, people I'm just saying who. I
0: should say it's got to have a dot and some stuff after it.
1: No, I guess you get away with that, but there's no reason you cannot say type equals email pattern equals, yeah. and then put in the regular expression that says See. ends with at sign, some letters, a dot, some letters.
0: And a plus.
1: And, uh, exactly. You have to be a little bit careful to allow it to be as many dots as you want afterwards, because yeah. you may you may have people at something.co.uk. Yeah, 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 yeah. So You've got to be a little bit clever in your regular expression, but absolutely it is entirely doable by regular expression. I could write it for you in a few minutes if you wanted me to. Uh, but probably not at 10 to 1 in the morning. <laughs> okay. So inside the zip file for today, you are going to find pbs39.html, which is a fully worked example. So if we look at it, we import jQuery for the simple reason that I have a submit button. And all that submit button does is instead of contacting a server, it prints out the form data underneath the form. And it Um, does that using Am I I supposed
0: to be following along somewhere?
1: So we're on pbs39.html. So you can see the whole thing in the show notes or you can open it in your code editor of choice.
0: Okay, okay, looking at it in the in the HTML and where are you? You said I have
1: just gotten as far as line 7. <laughs> oh, okay, importing the, the jQuery. HTML. Okay, got you. All right. So the 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 only reason I'm importing it is because on the page my submit button just shows the form data. So if you open the page in Safari or whatever and you submit the form while well it's valid, you will see Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. that's all I'm using jQuery for is just to show you that the form has submitted and what it submitted. That's the only reason I need JavaScript at all. The validation is entirely being done by the HTML. Okay. if If you want to practice your event handler code, there is your jQuery code for attaching event handlers to the button and to the form. I leave that as an exercise to the reader since we're in HTML mode today. The next thing then is our style for the form. So I have decided to mark required fields as having a yellow background. So I say input colon required, open squarely bracket, background minus color light yellow. And you will see the one required field does indeed have a light yellow background. Yeah. Then I have mark text fields with invalid data with a red border and text. So I am saying input colon invalid, comma, text area colon invalid. In other words, an input tag with the pseudo class invalid or, so the comma means or, a text area with the pseudo class invalid will have color dark red. That care here the text. Border minus color red. Border minus width one pixel. Border minus style solid. So you get a solid one pixel red border against invalid data. And the text will be in red until it's valid. And then when when it becomes valid, it just goes to normal color because I haven't put in a style there for input colon valid to make it green, which I could in theory do if, if if I were to have wanted to. I just didn't feel like it. Got it. And then you have examples of input type equals email, input type equals URL. They're all in here for you to play with. So I think that's a fairly self-explanatory example.
0: Yeah, remind me again. So you've got label for, quote, name underscore TB. Yes. What is that name underscore TB?
1: it matches the ID. So in other words, you were saying this label is for whatever has that ID. What so you're does- tying the label to the thing. Where is? So label four equals name underscore TB and the label input type equals text name equals name required ID equals name underscore TB. So that label is for that input because the four attribute matches the ID.
0: Okay, and the label. So at line
1: fifty-two, you're saying you're the label making is a label just the
0: text that's sitting to the left of it.
1: It's the right. text but we visually it, see. Okay, and because it has been properly marked as being for something, when you click on the text, your cursor jumps into the text field. Right. Right. That's what that for attribute does. Didn't it actually it also tells do the browser. For
0: accessibility too.
1: Yes, it does. Yeah. It tells. Okay. Now I remember. Yeah. So you, as a sighted person, can use it as a shortcut to represent the text box. And a screen reader will use it to understand that when they focus that text box by using the rotator or whatever they're using, that's the English it should say, right? So when the person rotates into that text box uh, using the accessibility features, the little voice that runs at a million miles an hour should say, your name, your name required. Or something else equally quick. Right. How people understand that, I'll never know. But I guess practice makes perfect. So, yes, that's what's going on there. Um, Because I would like you to start becoming proficient at reading stuff that's not written by me, I'm going to start including a links section on the bottom of our installments whenever it's appropriate. So, if you want to learn more about validation, I highly recommend the Mozilla Developer Network's tutorial on the matter. I found it very helpful when assembling these show notes.
0: Oh. A challenge. So, it's a tutorial you can walk through and...
1: It's basically the documentation for the for the validation stuff oh, okay. as written by the Mozilla people. Oh, okay. Pretty good. Cool. All right. Good. I, I say I used it heavily. Uh, a challenge. So I there is a there is a, a folder in the zip file called PBS thirty nine challenge starting point that contains a single HTML file, which contains basically the same content as PBS thirty nine that HTML except the form is missing. The submit button's still there. It's still plumbed into jQuery. But instead of having a whole bunch of text boxes and stuff, there's this paragraph that says, put your form here. <laughs> so that is where you will be putting your work. Okay. I would like you to imagine that you have been asked to write part of the user interface for the back end of something like IMDB. Okay. Some sort of database of movies. And what you have to write is the form into which the back-end staff get to enter the details about a movie. And I'd like you to imagine what information should be captured. And then what HTML element is most useful for that? Is that something I should do with radio buttons? Should I use check boxes? Should I use a drop-down list? Should I have a text box? Should I have a text area? If I do, should it be required? Should it be optional? Should I have some sort of rule apply that it must be at least four characters long? all of that kind of stuff to basically build a sane and sensible ui
0: i like this yeah. cuz it has got a lot of creativity to it too and right and that is all the real have world completely
1: different right so i could have written you a spec that says you must have an input called blur which was contained blur and blur but no that's not real world right, the right. real world is you're presented with a problem to solve and you then got to go do the work so this is a very open challenge but it gives a lot of scope for practicing you're also free to add as much extra CSS as you would like to make this page as pretty slash useful as you would like. Ooh,
0: I'm not very and good at CSS yet. I don't. In fact, have we done? We have the oh, yeah. the box model. I know we did some C, we did CSS, but have we done anything since then?
1: It's been a while. These are most, because we've been it's taken us so long to do JavaScript. That muscle is not particularly well exercised. So, yeah, you you may be reaching back a bit. Yeah. But, hey, all the notes are there, right?
0: Right, right. That's going to be and fun. And as I say,
1: I'm hoping you're getting more independent as we go through. That's kind of the point here. So I'm getting less prescriptive and more... He's going
0: to let go of the training wheels any minute now. I know he's going to do it.
1: Pretty much, yeah. So <laughs> prepare to have the programming equivalent of a face plant. And then yeah. get up, brush yourself down, and do it again. Okay, so at this stage of the game, we're actually doing pretty well. There is no more HTML I plan on teaching you. Oh. That's it. I usually. No, no, that that's was, good. No, I you know, but
0: I'm, I follow along much easier. It doesn't hurt as much. <laughs>
1: <It> <laughs> yeah, is. but you've got to practice it now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's also no more CSS I plan to teach. You. Okay. I don't, I don't think there's anything we've missed that's obvious.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, I haven't covered everything. But at this stage, I'm hoping that you're independent enough that if there, if you come across a problem to be solved and what I've told you doesn't solve it, I would expect you to be able to Google it to get the answer.
0: You mean in doing the homework?
1: No, no, just in general, just in life in general, right? If you're looking, what's the right HTML tag that's like a block quote, but it's in line? I didn't tell you about the Q tag, but that is actually the answer. I'd expect you to be able to Google that. Or what is the CSS attribute to make something happen to make the text go at 90 degrees to where it normally would whatever yeah. i haven't looked at text rotation it's pretty abstract almost never needed but i would expect you to be able to google that and be able to understand the result because it's going to tell you the name of the property is text minus rotation valid values are degrees counted from straight up or whatever the spec is i'm making it up i'm just right, inventing right. what it might but
0: I'm not, but to it, the, we aren't to the point where we can do anything inside of a, uh, like inside of WordPress, right?
1: Uh, well, that's right, but that's not because we, we don't know HTML, that's because we don't know WordPress. So that's not just a case. So WordPress is a whole word. You need to learn WordPress, you need to learn PHP. We're sitting, they,
0: they, I, I'm trying no. to put it in the context that while while I could do homework assigned to me, I can't do anything practical until I can work inside of a. a um,
1: well, that's uh, not true. Okay, no, that is actually not true, right? So you can right now in WordPress click when you're in when you're editing an article in WordPress when you're in the edit menu, you have the WYSIWYG editor, the training wheels, and there's a button to turn that off and turn it into a text area into which you type HTML.
0: Uh, right, right. But I'm so you could about, do that with HTML alone, yes. But the other, right. but I can't do anything with JavaScript, and I can do I can do some CSS. I can go in and find the little bits and pieces and tweak them,
1: but I can't. Yeah, exactly, I can't yeah, make a. You learn to do that theme, so you're doing your CSS already. So the JavaScript you need the help of a plugin for, and the plugin that I recommend that is very conveniently, and by conveniently I mean inconveniently, and <laughs> discontinued. So you so I am now on a quest to find a replacement. When I succeed on that quest, I will then need to train you up on it. Yeah, and then you'll have the ability to do arbitrary JavaScript in WordPress because the okay. plugin will basically inject it into the right place. Okay. So basically, the plugin will give you a text box into which you type your JavaScript, and the plugin takes care of the WordPress bit. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and I don't mean to make this all about me. Uh, for the,
1: the <laughs> about well, WordPress, look, but, that is part of it, right? But I mean, but I, but I didn't promise you this would be useful. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but uh, by WordPress I mean a content management system. To yeah, anyone th- here, because most people don't aren't going to use this information to program from scratch, right?
1: Okay, but they may want to do some cool stuff in Text Expander. You now have the skills for that. Text oh, Expander can true. use JavaScript.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got on that one.
1: Hazel, Automator, the Terminal. Oh, fine. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> you went to a conference on this just a few weeks ago. <laughs> And showed some of that. So, okay, yeah, fine. Okay. <laughs> Just because you can't do WordPress doesn't mean it's not useful. Right, right. So, okay, so basically right now our HTML is pretty much as complete as it's going to get. Our CSS is pretty much as complete as it's going to get. And I expect that you have enough skills now to take it the rest of the way if you stumble into an edge case. Uh, we were pretty full on JavaScript until I decided that we need to move on and learn about JavaScript version 6. And we're, we've only learned about version 5. So the next thing I want to do next week is to really make our cellular automata go so that you can see the value of all this effort we've been putting in, all these hours of homework you've been doing, and right now it does nothing. (laughs) So we we need to fix that. We need to make it do something. And then as soon as that's done, the next thing I want to do is teach you the cool new stuff in version 6 of JavaScript. And at that point, we have our triumvirate. We have our three front-end technologies, and then we're going to build something. I haven't decided what something is because we're, we're, we're a few months away from there, but we're definitely gonna build something. I also want to, from a front-end point of view, so you know HTML, you know CSS, and we're pretty well up in our JavaScript, but there's a few more things to learn. So actually, the future now is learning about libraries that have been written by other people to save us reinventing wheels, Yeah. right? And the, the, the first one I wanna teach you is Bootstrap. Oh, because yeah, Bootstra- yeah. You've been talking about Bootstrap that. allows you to make both beautiful and user-friendly websites with less effort. Now, Bootstrap isn't magic. Bootstrap is just a whole bunch of CSS written for you by someone else. <laughs> I mean, thousands and thousands of well-thought-out lines of CSS. And all you have to do is go class equals blah, blah, and you just inherit all of that CSS brilliance. And so we're just going to learn about the classes pre-written for you by the Bootstrap people that let you do cool stuff by just simply assigning classes to things.
0: Fabulous! That sounds fun. So that
1: is yeah. So that's where we're going. And I think I think I've probably waffled on enough at this stage. So <laughs> let's call it a day.
0: All right. Well, you're you're better at uh, at one in the morning than I am at uh, at noon. So I, I your energy's been fantastic. This has been a lot of fun. If you know what the secret is.
1: Coke Zero vanilla flavor. <laughs> so we we had a work social today, and normally at a work social I would have some beers. But I was recording with Alison. So I didn't bring in beers. I brought in a giant big two-liter bottle of Coke Zero. <laughs> it is empty. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I hope
0: you are able to get to sleep at some point.
1: So do I, because it's going to be raining tomorrow afternoon, so my exercise has to be in the morning. I have to get up. Okay. All right, well, this is fun. Oh, Also, we have a security bits to do, so I have to get up, exercise, and then write show notes, and then record with you.
0: That's all. Should be that's
1: easy. That's all. Okay. I, that's The bloody security industry did not stand still in the last two weeks, Alison. How oh, dare they? It sure didn't this time, did it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the understatement of the week. Equifax.
0: All right, well, we'll uh, it, now this is going to make no sense in the evergreen part of it, so we better cut it off.
1: Okie dokie. Well, until two weeks from now, happy computing.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. This show is not supported by ads, it's supported by you. If you learn from the show, or even if you're just merely entertained by the shows, please consider supporting the show. If you go to podfeet.com, there's a big red button in the top banner that says support the show. If you click it, that will reveal to you several ways to contribute. You can pledge a monthly amount using Patreon, You can use the Amazon Affiliate link for your country. You can make a one-time donation using PayPal, or you can record a listener review, which is an awesome way to contribute. You can always chat directly with me via Twitter at Podfeet or email me at allison at podfeet.com. You can join the conversation in Facebook by going to podfeet.com slash Facebook or on Google Plus at podfeet.com slash Google Plus. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.